There is no roadmap for what is happening in the world today, but the more informed you are, the better your chances are for successfully navigating these uncertain times. This is why the registry continues to bring its real estate news coverage to keep you informed and better prepared to meet the challenges of the industry. We can only do this because of generous readers who support our work. Thank you to your commitment to journalism, especially now. And if you're not a subscriber yet, you can join us at the registrysf.com in San Francisco and at the registryps.com in Seattle. Today we have an opportunity to chat with one of the registry's oldest friends, the affable Paul Zeger. Paul has been instrumental in helping us get off the ground back in 2008 and served at one time on our editorial board. Paul is a partner in the San Francisco-based Polaris Pacific, where for over 30 years he's helped lead his clients in identifying and capitalizing on residential development opportunities across the western United States. Paul's client relationships include some of the most successful real estate development firms on the West Coast, TMG Partners, Emerald Fund, Lennar Urban, and Wilson Meany, to name a few. Welcome, Paul. People come to the San Francisco Bay Area for many reasons, a spectacular natural setting, a sophisticated lifestyle, and unique professional opportunities. Those seeking these qualities will find all that and more at Hacienda where you can work, live, and grow. A Hacienda location means having the best of everything with an easy reach. Whether it's world-class restaurants, theater, and museums, the best learning institutions in the country, or some of the finest services available. That particularly applies to businesses wanting the best address to have easy access to needed resources, being among other industry leaders and knowing that you are part of a region that leads the world in innovation. The result? An unbeatable combination that leads to success. And that is what you will find at Hacienda. Find out more by visiting Hacienda on the web at www.hacienda.org. Paul, how are you? Very good, Vlad. How are you doing? And how's Heather? Doing well, thank you. Everyone's doing well here in our household, uh, getting ready for for the summer. I don't know if it's going to be a long summer or a short summer, but you know, it feels like it's going to be long because everyone's been at home for a while. So, how about you guys? Doing well. Uh, you know, my wife and I uh, live up in Marin County, and we're blessed that the climate and the weather is so great, and we have so much outdoor space that we've really been able to, even though we're sort of impri- imprisoned with the, you know, shelter in place, we've been out and about and really been enjoying the fact that there's a little bit more time. It's amazing when you take a couple hours of commuting out of your day, you've got a lot more time to deal with the rest of us. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. So, Paul, it um, struck me, you you and I have known each other uh, since, um, well, now it's almost two two recessions ago is when we met back in like 07 and 08, kind of before the last one hit. So by way of um, introduction, um, I, you know, usually ask our guests to say a few words and kind of um, introduce themselves and their and their company. So would you mind giving us a uh, kind of an overview of, you know, Polaris Pacific, uh, what, what you do there, how long the company's been around, and sort of your kind of sphere of influence, if you will. Be happy to. Um, this is uh, going on my 35th year in the business. I started out as a finance and marketing guy working for big investment companies. And in the mid-80s, stumbled into this business of new home marketing and sales. 
And uh, this is the third version of that in terms of companies. Uh, but Polaris Pacific is the West Coast's uh, leading uh, marketing and sales firm for new home developments. Uh, we specialize in urban infill, so we concentrate on a lot of high-rise product or a lot of high-density product in urban core areas. And we're in eight markets in the West Coast, uh, San Francisco and all around the Bay Area, Seattle, Portland, Los Angeles, San Diego, uh, Scottsdale, Phoenix, Denver, and Hawaii. And uh, we track those markets very carefully. We're a company of about uh, 65 to 70 people. Uh, 25 in a corporate office, and the balance out on projects. Uh, as of today, we have 19 active projects selling across the West Coast. So we get a great sense of what's happening out in the marketplace in a diverse number of locations and with a you know real diverse group of developers. And from that, we try to gain as much uh, knowledge as we can. We're a database company in the sense that we study everything going on in the marketplace and try to educate our developers on how to best serve that market and maximize the return on their uh, developments. Yeah, and I think it's worthwhile saying also that you also work with them at the very beginning of the process, right? When they're looking to acquire land also, right? So this is not just on the back end trying to help them um, sell their units, but but you, you kind of take this sort of long approach with them. Is that correct? Yes. One of the nice things about our business is because we're getting active information from the market in multiple locations every day, uh, we're able to take that information to new develop to developers who are doing new projects and sit down in the design process and in the strategy side of things and really say, here's where the market is going and where your opportunities are. Uh, you know, I like in a new home development to shooting a rocket to the moon. You know, if you shoot a rocket to the moon where it is today, you're going to miss it by a long shot by the time it gets there. Well, with development, if you strategically say, OK, I'm going to build what's perfect for today's market. By the time you deliver in two to three to five years, the market will have changed and you may miss your opportunity. So we really spend a lot of time trying to think about what's going on actively in the market, where it's headed and how to best uh, take advantage of that as you deliver product. Yeah. So, Paul, correct me if I'm if I'm wrong, but there's been certain markets have been very active in building for sale housing. But other markets like specifically, you know, the one in Seattle has been, you know, very kind of you know, hands off or, you know, more on the on the apartment side in the last cycle. Tell us a little bit about how that's evolved since the sort of last recession. I, I think it's worthwhile men- mentioning kind of why that it has happened or is or is happening. And, and then kind of where was that world, you know, at, at the end of last year before COVID hit? The way that the market tends to go and in the development world, you know, there's no, everybody's looking to develop the product that will give their investors. Um, so when our developers go out and look at a site and they may call us and say, I've got an opportunity to purchase uh, this location at Maine and Maine uh, in a fantasy city, what should we build? We're always helping in the feasibility process to look at both the apartment side and the condominium side. And the reason that we look at both is that they're going to go raise money from banks and from investors, and they're going to put that money in, and they're going to look at what are the risks and what are the potential returns. And coming out of the last cycle uh, in 2008, you know that period between sort of 2001 and 2008, when the market was uh, you know very prosperous, a tremendous amount of money had been raised by uh, financial institutions and REITs 
to invest in real estate. The dot-com experience in the early 2000s wasn't so great. There was sort of an implosion in the year 2000. And so a lot of people pulled their money out of the dot-com world and said, hey, where where else can we put this money? And they started looking at real estate. And so there was a tremendous pool of real of funds looking to go into real estate. In 2007, 2008, when the market cycled down, a lot of those REITs and those institutional investors, you know, pulled back and sat on their capital. But as we came out of the downturn in 2009, they were looking for opportunities to invest. And because a lot of those large money sources looked at apartments as a lower risk decision. They could invest money, they could hold those apartments for an extended time, or they could sell it to other institutions that want, were looking for income streams. About 85% of the new development after 2008 went into the apartment business. So like the apartments, they felt like they could control it more, they felt like it was a growing market, and they felt like they could trade that. So there was a certain amount of liquidity. Whereas on the condominium side, when you build, you have to hit the cycle right so that when you deliver, you've got a strong market to sell those homes. And at that point, you have a you know a, a capitalizing event. And if you sell successfully, you make a lot of money. And if you hit a market that's slower or for some reason has had a downturn, you can be in a situation where it's a longer drawn out period of time. Um, so that a lot of that decision led the money to go specifically into apartments. I know in San Francisco in particular, about 85% of the land that was available for uh, multifamily development went into apartments. And that was primarily because the REITs legally couldn't invest in condominiums. So they were all investing in in, in apartments. And so that kind of drove the market. And it actually motivated us as a company to diversify into a number of different markets. At that time, we were primarily uh, San Francisco and Los Angeles based. And we said, well, lower percentage of the product is going condo. And that's the focus of our business. We're going to go to different markets and follow the people who are doing the condominium. Yeah. And that's how we got to all these other markets. And then a couple of other things happened in the last cycle, I would I would I would argue one is you had sort of a big influx of kind of the millennial generation entering the workforce, right? I mean, that was that was one big driver. And then the other one was there was kind of this return to urbanization, if you will. And especially around, you know, the tech centers of, you know, the Bay Area and, you know, the Puget Sound region, you know, people wanted to kind of be, be back in the, in the urban sort of setting, right? Tell us a little bit about how, how that evolved. Um, there were a lot of thoughts being made about, you know, how the, you know, millennial, you know, generation wants to live, but, you know, it was based on people, what, what, what people knew about it back then. Um, you know, how, how has that evolved since also? Well, you know, it's an interesting story because when I go back historically a little bit and say, now, how did we get here? Why did so, everybody move to the suburbs? You know, I tend to blame it on the oil companies because uh, back in the you know 40s and 50s and after World War II, when the economy really started to expand, most people at that point were living in urban areas. And they looked at where do we want to live? And they didn't say, hey, let's build high rises because the automotive company said, jump in your big Buick and drive 10 miles out into the suburb and get yourself a nice track house where you can have two kids and a two-car garage and a backyard and all those things. And they promoted that urban lifestyle and they downplayed transit and they downplayed urban infill and the core stuff. And so what ended up happening is that everybody moved out and out and out to get that slice of the American pie. 
Well, eventually that traffic became the big driving force that people said, you know, I really don't like sitting in my car for an hour, an hour and a half every day to get to work and another hour, an hour and a half to come home. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to get closer to the city center. And there was a big push starting really in the 80s where people said, hey, if I could live in the city, that's a much more attractive lifestyle. And that evolved in the 90s and into the early 2000s with the millennial generation where people said, boy, a better lifestyle than you know living out in the burbs and commuting back and forth would be to be in the urban core and to really experience city living and to have convenient access to everything you know and all the services and all the entertainment that a city is comprised of and so there was this pushback into the urban areas and we started to see much more density coming up and that's where the real high rise push started to happen and it's interesting because uh, in San Francisco in particular, when that happened, we called it the Manhattanization of yeah, San Francisco right. be because we said, hey, look, everybody's going to live in high rises. Well, you know, the consequence of that and was that people started moving back in and loved the lifestyle, but the cost of living in the urban cores started to become very expensive. So the cost of construction was driven up. The cost of high-rise yeah. development was more expensive. Cities started to tax uh, residential developers very aggressively yep, to try yep. to pay for all the services. And the end result of that is that the cost of living in in the urban core became very expensive. So it the Manhattanization not only involved just the fact that it was high rise, but also the fact that it was really uh, economically stratified where people had to make a lot of money to live in the city center. Yeah. And that's why I laugh at the fact that, you know, Manhattan, you know, is really now for rich people, you know, Brooklyn, Queens and all the other boroughs are where people that sort of normal average people are living in Manhattan. Yeah. New York area. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's kind of the lesson that we learned at that time, which is urban core is highly desirable. People love the lifestyle. They love the walkability factor. They love taking their kids on bike rides, you know, to school in the morning. But, you know, the cost of it is such that it start to become very uh, families and particularly young families to afford that. Yeah, yeah. COVID hits earlier this year, and it has an impact, obviously, you know, very, very wide and, um, you know, very deep uh, across the industry, across every industry, uh, across every aspect of our, of our life, right? Tell us a little bit about kind of what the impact was on, on you know, y your business and, and not necessarily just your company's business, but, but more more in general, you know, the people you work with, uh, you know, developers and, um, you know, everybody else. Yeah. And before we jump in there, I'm just going to take a step before pre-COVID and talk about, you know, 2019, what was going on. Well, you know, we were all sitting around going, boy, the economy is really good and interest rates are really low. And there's a ton of young millennials that are making a bunch of money and can afford to buy all this urban product. And some markets were mixed. You know, Seattle in particular had slowed down a little bit in 2019. It was kind of up and down. Uh, LA was a little bit up and down, but the Bay Area was really strong and Scottsdale was really strong and Denver's going crazy. And all these cities are just prospering. And you know, we're all sitting around, at least the veterans who have been through a lot of down cycles saying, gee, you know, the economy looks so good. You know, I'm not really sure that there's, you know, we're kind of worried that the cycles now, you know, and it's 10th year and usually they cycle down sooner than this. And, yeah. you know, we really we're looking at, you know, 
what on earth could happen to disrupt this thing because everything just seems so healthy. And at the beginning of the year, January and early February, all of the markets seemed to really take off and be very strong. And then, you know, we got a very uh, clear definition of the term black swan event. You know, and a black swan event is usually a, it's a rare thing that happens because swans are generally white sure. and every once in a while there would be a black swan. And so that would be an unusual event that you couldn't anticipate ever. And it's always referred to in, you know, financial studies where they go, well, everything, you know, except if we have some unknown event. Well, this uh, pandemic really, you know, I remember hearing. Uh, when it first was happening, saying, oh, you know, yeah, it's a problem in China. It doesn't look like it's going to be a problem here. You know, we were opening up a bunch, bunch of new projects. And in fact, uh, you know, we were out celebrating the success of one of our newest projects, One Stewart Lane, uh, when we had kicked it off and it was going really great with the ownership. And in the middle of the meal, the owners who were from New York got a call saying that their offices were closing the next day wow. for COVID. And it was like, wow, I guess this is more serious than we anticipated. And so uh, we ran you know, headlong into this with these 19 active sales offices. And, you know, essentially I've made it through, you know, the 89 earthquake, I've, you know, worked through that, the dot-com bust in 2000, you know, the World Trade Center in 2001, and, you know, the what they now call the Great Depression in 2008. And in every situation, it pretty much the same thing happened. There's this big event, and for about 24 hours, everybody sits around feeling sorry, going, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? This is terrible. You know, this is changing our world. What are we going to do? And then, like, literally 24 hours later, my partners and I got together and said, okay, this is reality. We don't know how long it's going to last. We don't know what it's going to take. But what do we need to do to reinvent our business? Because the choice of saying, oh, let's just go home and wait for it to pass just isn't realistic. You know, our developer clients are sitting back going, wait a minute, I'm supposed to pay off my construction loan this year. Get out there and sell. We don't care about disease. We don't care about any sell. And so, you know, we took a big step back. You know, we thought about it very carefully and Basically, it took us around two weeks to convert all of our sales offices from in-person greeting places where we met the public and threw parties and events and showcased our project to uh, virtual uh, sales centers. And by virtual sales centers, I'm meaning that we communicated with all of our client base exclusively via you know telephone and yeah. internet. And uh, that was something that was a pretty radical change. Uh, properties that were selling well in advance of delivery with big pre-sale programs and, you know, where we starting out, you know, a year, a year and a half before we're ever going to deliver any product, they were better equipped for it because they didn't rely on in-person showcasing the properties they had already done, rendered, you know, visions of all the home and rendered fly-throughs and uh, Matterport scans and all the different things that we could do to showcase the property. And so they were kind of set up. And I, I, I reference a project we have in Hawaii called Wailea Hills, where we were um, literally about to open when this whole COVID thing hit. And because in Hawaii, the way it works is into the sales center, they know this is in Maui. They know Maui well, well they know Wailea. They say, I was interested in a place there. They shop online. And since they were shopping online and we had created all the tools to effectively communicate the story online, we really didn't miss a beat 
you know, we were selling a week after COVID hit in Hawaii, just like we were the week before COVID hit, because people were saying, okay, yeah, there's this going on, but it's going to pass. And I'm interested in having a second home or a retirement home there. And I'm going through the same process I would have gone through anyways. So it didn't feel like it was a big transition. The places that were set up where we we're about to deliver homes and we had a model set up and we had been bringing the public in. And as I said, throwing events and, you know, really conducting it in a more traditional fashion, those buildings, you know, were a little bit more of a challenge because we had to very quickly go out and create all the materials, retrain the sales agents, yep. which was a big part of it. You know, you got agents who in our business, the very senior people have been doing this for many years. And in sales, you know, personal connection is so much a part of the process. Yeah, of you know, if you're going to make a decision to buy a million and a half dollar two bedroom you communicate with a sales agent and they explain the story and you know we're very focused on sort of a consultant sale as opposed to a high pressure sale so we try to educate people build rapport explain the opportunity and the buyers tend to get comfortable with the selling agent to, to the point where they build up a trust and feel like okay this is a good decision we all agreed that this is what i should do i'm going to go ahead and do it you would all of a sudden put you know earplugs and a mask on that process where you know you just didn't have that opportunity anymore so we made a very concerted effort to sit down with all of our and i say sit down via zoom with all of our sales team and really go over how does the process work and how do you communicate online and how do you create an interesting Zoom presentation? Um, and how do you motivate a consumer who's sitting at home wondering if this is a good time to do something yeah. to move forward in the current environment we're at? And you know, those were the really two issues. One is how do you educate them to know enough to make a decision? And two, how do you overcome the natural tendency to say, well, is this a good time to buy something? You know, this COVID thing is crazy. You know, maybe I'll just wait and see what happens. And, you know, that may make sense for some consumers, but for other consumers, you know, they could make that decision and move forward. So we really spent a lot of time and energy on that. One interesting feature that came up through this whole process, because we had a number of properties that were, had already pre-sold homes in 2019 and were delivering into the middle of this COVID pandemic, um, people generally went forward with their transactions. They did not, you know, people who were in escrow for six months and were waiting for the delivery of their home continued to say, okay, I'm gonna close on this. In fact, we had some interesting challenges of getting the county recorder's office <laughs> to come to work so that we could record a closing at various times in this process, you know, particularly the few weeks right after the immediate shutdown. So. Um, that's, you know, was the complicating factor here. And I feel like we've made a really good transition and it's a credit to all these people in the industry that they were able to very quickly figure out how to go from that in-person touch and feel and the, you know, the yeah. grand handshake and pat on the back and let's be friends kind of thing to, okay, I'm here as a educator and I'm going to help you understand why this is a good decision right now. So Paul, uh, that's an interesting perspective in terms of how it's all evolved, right? You know, since and and uh, since you know COVID broke out and how you guys had to readjust and deal with these things. So, so where where are things now? What are what are developers thinking? You know, what are you seeing on the consumer confidence side? Um, you you sell a product that's you know higher end, right? But there's also some entry level 
product there also give us a little bit of a sense of sort of how you're feeling things are uh, now that we've had you know a couple of months of this thing yeah and and we actually glad uh, we sell a wide range of stuff you know in general, it's higher end in the sense that anything in the urban core is tends to be more expensive. We don't have a lot of suburban track type stuff that's real super entry level, but we are selling the full range of uh, you know city residences. Yeah, and as a result of that, we found kind of two things: the very low end, and when I say very low end, the real entry level product that's either small or very efficient and is selling at a lower absolute price, and particularly when you look at the below market rate product and then the initial entry level product, that continues to be very active. And it's driven primarily by the fact that interest rates are so low that the monthly cost of ownership is very modest right now. Um, so that end of the business has been very, very consistent and steady throughout. And the very high end, the ultra wealthy individuals who really don't have to buy, they're really choosing to buy as a result of the fact that there's a unique opportunity. And in Seattle, that would be the Emerald. In San Francisco, that would be one Stewart Lane. In Los Angeles, it's the top of the metropolis. All of that product also seems to have a very high level of continued interest. I think it's the middle of the market where, so we have kind of this barbell effect. On either end, it's very strong. In the middle, it's been a little slower. And generally, that's because that's either move up people who are looking to sell one home and buy another home or people relocating from other locations. And historically, rents have been so high that they've driven people into the purchase decision. But now rents have come off quite a bit, and so people don't feel the pressure to go out and buy something right now because they're wasting $8,000 a month on rent. Um, so that has sort of, that part of the market has been a little softer. I think it's really just a slower process. Uh, we have had a little bit of a stutter. Uh, in early May, things started to pick up and we saw business resurging. Uh, pretty effectively. And we saw traffic both increasing and sales activity increasing. And then with uh, political activity that's been going on with the protests and the uh, riots that have been happening in the inner city, uh, we had a bit of a slowdown right at the end of May and into the beginning of June. But in the last two weeks, or last 10 days particularly, and that's how closely we monitor this. We're looking at every project every day to see what kind of activity there is. We've seen traffic pick up dramatically, consumer confidence increasing where people aren't coming in with such a negative attitude, yeah. and sales activity starting to pick up again. So, uh, you know, yesterday at the various projects, we sold like eight homes, which was a very big change from where it's been over the last few months. And we said, boy, what's going on? And the agents came back to us and said, well, what's happening is a lot of people we've been talking to for the last three months have finally said, okay, we're coming out of this. I'm going to make a decision. And so that's been a real surge of activity that we, we were waiting for and we're hopeful that we'll continue to grow and pick up um, over the summer. And uh, that's really, uh, you know, kind of the current status, which is, you know, we're cautiously optimistic that consumers are feeling better about the market. Now, that said, you know, most people coming into a sales office today, if they're going to buy in the back of their mind, they've got that little voice that says, I'm buying at a time that other people might consider risky. 
my parents, my friends, my, you know, work compadres, you know, may be saying, are you crazy? Why are you buying now? So pretty much everybody coming in is looking for some kind of deal, if you will. Yep. And it's not a dramatic necessarily drop in price, but they want to feel like they got something to reward them for making a decision to buy at a time where, you know, a lot of people would say it's a good time to wait. And 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 what are you seeing in terms of people being a little concerned about moving into, you know, the urban environment? Is Has that, you know, been an issue at all? Well, it's funny because, you know, as I described earlier, there was this huge push where people just couldn't get enough of living in the urban environment. Right. You know, young couples were wanted to have their kids there and wanted to raise their kids in the city. And they just wanted to have this cultural experience. And then all of a sudden this hit and, you know, we saw a lot of people living in the city say, you know, I don't really need to live in the city in a high rise apartment building. You know, I'm going to go home and live with my parents. You know, I'm going to live in my old room or I'm going to go, you know, in the, in the pool house or I'm going to, you know, get in a, a house out in the burbs because I don't have to commute to work anymore. And so we've seen a lot of that happen short term. Now, as things are opening up again and, you know, San Francisco is just getting to the point where we're uh, bringing people back into offices, we're expecting that all those people will come back to, to their residential locations and we'll start to see more people pushing. But consumers have, uh, you know, I think they got a little bit soured, but I really feel strongly that, you know, that's a short term thing. You know, we saw that after the big earthquake in 89, nobody wanted to live in San Francisco. And then a year later, all of those places that nobody wanted to live in were selling like hotcakes. And two years later, you know, they were 30% more expensive than they were at the time of the earthquake. And five years later, they're double and triple the price. So, you know, it's a short term reactionary kind of situation. I do believe in the value of, inner, you know, urban core living. And I do feel like the consumers in general still want to live in the cities. And I don't think people are walking around right now saying, gee, I don't want to, you know, li ever live in a city because this might happen again. I think most people are saying to themselves, you know, I fully expect that we'll get through this. Yeah. And, uh, you know, after it's over, we're going to be smarter about it next time. So we won't have the same kind of problem. Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite uh, metrics in your monthly reports, uh, uh, Paul, is the I, I, I believe it's called the months, months of inventory. Um, right. uh, and I, I always liked that because it sort of really provided kind of a very quick, you know, glimpse in terms of how much supply there is, uh, compared to the, to the demand. And this is obviously in a, you know, supply and demand kind of, um, kind of, you know, business. How has that changed in the last few months? And, 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 uh, and it, and just to sort of, you know, for the benefit of the audience, that number was was very low, meaning there wasn't enough supply to meet the demand in, in most of these places. But but how has that evolved since uh, since the end of 2019? Well, we have started to see, you know, what's interesting in our business is that there's a real counter cyclical balance between when the banks finance a deal and when the home is delivered. So just to follow my train of thought here, if the economy was really good and, and what we're seeing right now, you know, in 2008, no banks were financing new construction. In 2010, banks started to warm up to the idea. By 2012, they were all competing to get into the business to finance new development deals. All those 2012 
bank financing started a process that delivered a lot of product in sort of 2015 and 2016. And then at that period of time, banks got a little worried again. They said, oh, there's all this inventory coming in the market. You know, we funded three years ago. Now it's all coming. We're a little worried. I think we'll hold off for another, you know, see what happens to all this inventory. Well, in 2017 and 2018, all of that inventory got absorbed very quickly at great prices. The developers made a ton of money. The banks got all their money back and made a big profit and said, gee, we ought to do more of this business. Yeah. And, they, and so developers ran out, bought a bunch more land, started new projects, got financed by the bank. And that's all stuff that's coming through the pipeline now for delivery in 2020, 2021, 2022. And so we have a little bit of a healthier supply of inventory, but it's nowhere near the supply to satisfy the demand. And I can use some San Francisco numbers because they're fresh in my head. You know, new jobs in the Bay Area between 2000 and uh, 2015 and 2018, new jobs, something like $125,000, sorry, 125,000 new jobs were formed. Well, the math typically says that for every two to three new jobs, you need a new housing unit. So we deliver 125,000, we need something like 40,000 new housing units. We only delivered something like 12,000 yeah. new housing units. And so what happened is the demand was high, the undersupply, that drives the price up, and that allowed the formula to work very successfully. And we're still in that situation. If you look at months of inventory, we have approximately two to three, maybe four months in any of the markets, San Francisco, Seattle, Los Angeles, that we're working in, the big markets. And typically, six months inventory is what we call a healthy balance market. So when we have six months of inventory coming, we know that the balance between supply and demand is about right. So we're still undersupplied greatly, which leads us to believe that the market will recover pretty quickly. And the one thing that's nice is that a lot of people have made a ton of money in this last cycle, and those are the consumers that are in a position to purchase the new homes that are being delivered. Paul, also as a, as a follow-up, as you look at the landscape of what, what the developers are doing now in, in response to you know, how people want to live and where they want to live, are, are you noticing any changes in terms of what the product is going to look like in the future? You know, it's interesting you ask that because uh, the first thing we're doing with all of our developer clients who are in the planning stage is, is revisiting the design and saying, you know, what things do we need to do now to react to the current situation? And interestingly enough, how to squeeze a hand sanitizer in at the entry of every single building has become like the number one thing. Everybody wants to get that done, you know, in just in every building. So they're trying to figure out yeah. how do we build it in and how do we make it attractive and you know, all these questions around that. But there are other things as well. You know, touchless access to everything is now becoming almost mandatory as opposed to it used to be a technology upgrade, meaning that you come to the front door, it opens automatically go to the elevators, you wave your key, fo your fob, it, oh, it, the elevator comes and takes you to your floor without having to touch any buttons. Front door entry, you know, do you use a fob, do you use keyless entry of some sort? Um, there's been a bit of a shift away from probably common open space. You know, in the sum, a year ago, if you went into any large building in San Francisco or Seattle or Los Angeles, 
you'd walk around the lobby and you'd go, oh my gosh, you know, it looks like a library. Every couch and every nook and cranny had somebody with a laptop working away. And these were all people who worked at home that were tired of sitting in their condominium. They would come down to the lobby and work or into the common space. Um, we're seeing less of that. And I think people are trying to create more private space and also create space within the home. Uh, we went away from sort of the technology niche where you'd have your desk in the old days and you'd have your, you know, your, your desktop computer. Now everybody has laptops, so they're you doing that from their couch. But we're going back to the point of saying, hey, how could we squeeze in a niche here so people can have a place for their work at home stuff so it's not on the kitchen table? We're seeing a little bit more private open space in the form of balconies or you know, operable windows that can open up in a big way so your living room has a great airflow. Upgrade in HVAC, HVAC systems, uh, you know, with high, you know, big filters and all kinds of things so that in our promotion, we can say that we have this high quality HVAC system. Uh, water purification is something else that's come up. Um, you know, in the common area workout rooms, uh, you know, we're creating private spaces in there where you have a little small area where you can bring the weights in and do your workout on your own, or it has a video monitor and you could do an aerobics workout without having a lot of people around. So there have been some shifts. Um, obviously, it takes a little longer to get those implemented and delivered, but they are sort of, you know, developers thinking about what's the next thing that I need to do in order to have the most desirable product in the marketplace. Yeah, makes sense. Um, Paul, so when when you were talking about your business earlier and sort of how you guys reacted to uh, COVID overall, one of the things that you said, you know, you, you know, gather with your partners usually when something like this happens or, you know, cycle is about to turn and you think about, okay, new things and, you know, innovation and, you know, that kind of stuff. I also believe that, you know, these are the times when, you know, companies kind of create new products, new services, and really sort of try to transform themselves. And what makes them successful is that they're able to, you know, pivot into the new cycle, if you will, and kind of ride the wave up too. What are some of the things as a, as a, you know, business person and um, as a, as a, you know, leader of, of your company that you guys have, uh, have, you know, focused on to be ready for the, for the next cycle? Well, we've always been very data and technology driven. So, and because we're in the Bay Area and we have access to such, you know, brilliant minds in these areas, we have spent a tremendous amount of time trying to take advantage of that. So a perfect example is, you know, Salesforce. Everybody wonders what Salesforce does. Well, one of the things they do really well is they allow you to set up systems to track your customer base and to track them not only in the sense of here's a long list of all the people that we want to chase, but here's the specific needs of each of these individuals on this long list. So when we say, hey, you know, on a given project, we've got 3,000 people that have already registered to get information on a new home development, you know, that's good information. And you can send out an email to 3,000 people and say, come and get it. Yeah. But what's even better is that if we know that of those 3,000 people, 200 people are looking specifically for a one bedroom den in this price range and they're looking to you know pay not more than this amount of money it allows you to target your audience very specifically and so we are able to reach out to people with a story that's much more targeted so we don't send you a thing and say come on in you know you're interested in the studio but here's an ad for a penthouse you know 
we say, you're looking for a studio. Hey, interest rates just went down a quarter of a point. Your home just became much less expensive. You should come in and take a look at that. So by using the technology, one, we can personalize the service at a much higher level and maintain communications that are much more effective. You know, we like to call it permission-based marketing, where we don't just blanket you with emails, but we send you things that you're specifically going to be interested in. And so as a result of that, we have much more effective communications. And the result of that is that even though traffic has gone down dramatically in terms of numbers of bodies walking into any given sales center on a day, the quality of that traffic is so much higher that our ability to write a contract with somebody has gone up dramatically. So the people that are coming in are highly educated, know the product, have already looked at the floor plans online, have probably talked to a sales agent specifically about what their needs are so that when they come in to see the product, you know, we show them two or three homes that meet their needs exactly. And that results in a much higher success rate with the consumers. So that's one thing that's been particularly good. And then the second thing is really understanding the market data so that as we study and you've looked at our monthly reports, the goal of that is to really track every condominium sale on all the regions that we work in every day so that we can go back to an owner and say, you know, I know that you wanted your two bedrooms to sell for $1.8 million, but the bulk of the activity in the market is $1.6 million. So your choice is either to go slower and keep your price at 1.8 or to go faster at 1.6. And then the developer can make a conscious decision that, you know, the cost of money is such that they'd rather sell it today at one six than wait two years to sell it at 1.8. Yeah. And so that's kind of part of the process that allowed us to be much better at both servicing the developer clients and servicing the consumer clients. And, you know, that's the beauty of the brokerage business. You sandwich yourself in between these two groups. And so you really need to pay attention to both groups to make a successful uh, sale. Yeah. So, Paul, um, I've known you now for about maybe uh, over over 12 years. Uh, you're one of the most optimistic, positive people that I know in the industry. Um, and for uh, this you know, final question, what I would love to ask you is, uh, you know, what 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 are you optimistic about? You know, so a lot of people are kind of focusing on the negative aspects of, uh, of you know, COVID and the pandemic and the economy. But, you know, let's turn that to the positive. Um, what 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 excites you about what is what is to come? Well, I, I think the lesson always is that whenever there's a big change in the market, there's opportunity created. So the opportunity comes in several forms right now. One, land prices will go down. Two, the cost of construction, both from you know the lack of new projects causing you know laborers to take less or subcontractors to charge less for their services, and technology coming into the business and really helping support production at a lower cost. I hope the cost of construction is going to come down as well. And, you know, with interest rates so low, the opportunity, the purchasing power that people have is so much greater that I think that people will feel that purchasing power. And as the economy returns, they'll choose to, you know, make an investment in housing. I think one thing that is truly clear is that over time, if you look at a long-term trend line, you know, real estate has been a very, very profitable place for people to invest their money. 
And so that knowledge is something that most consumers have, and it really is the choice of most people to own their home as opposed to rent if they can't afford to own their home. So those are all positive things. Um, I'm a big believer that the revitalization of the urban core is happening in a big way right now. And yes, a lot of stores are going to go out of business and a lot of small mom and pop restaurants are probably going to get wiped out. But when they come back, there'll be exciting new things happening and that will motivate people to want to be part of that and really encourage them to you know, live the urban lifestyle, which, you know, if you talk to people who are out there looking, you know, there's a period of time generally when people have the Amer let's put it this way. The American dream was always if I'm going to have a family, I need the, you know, three, four bedroom house with the two car garage and the yard to live the lifestyle I'm looking for. And I think that vision is shifting right now to, hey, if I can get a three bedroom apartment at a BART stop somewhere with a big park next door, that's just as bit, uh, every bit as nice a lifestyle. And it's a much more uh, energy and uh, resource conservative way to live. And I think that's really the big trend in our society right now is people are gonna figure out how to conserve resources. And that's gonna be, you know, fuel and that's going to be housing and that's going to be common area space instead of private you yeah. know outdoor space and so all of those things seem to be happening and will continue to happen you know this is a little bit of a setback and no question that it's scared a lot of people but you know i think this economy you know is still the center of uh, the world economy and it will come back and when it does you know that will allow the opportunity for more development and more people to afford to live in the urban core and that's really what i think in general our clients are looking for and i feel optimistic that you know everybody i know and i'm of the age now that my kids are having their kids and so I don't have those responsibilities anymore. And most of my contemporaries are saying, you know, why are we living in the suburbs? We should be moving back into the city. That's where all the action is. Exactly. And I think that's, that's the future. Great. Paul, thank you very much. Always great to hear from you. Stay safe. You too. And uh, best to your family. And hope everything in Seattle, Seattle is going well. Yeah.